You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show this week. I'm going to kind of take us back all the way to episode 16 of the show. Ooh. And what I'll call back here, Rachel, you mentioned something called Pando. I did. Uh, is, oh, yeah. Yeah. What? Pando is widely cited as the largest living organism on Earth. So just mm-hmm. in case you haven't memorized every episode we've ever done, uh, I, I want to do a, a little quick recap on that. So Pando is a quaking aspen colony. Uh, it's not a singular tree trunk, but rather thousands of tree trunks that are all genetically identical and connected into one large organism. It's very cool. Uh, as Rachel talked about when it was her topic on aspens, mm-hmm. they have this habit of spreading in two different ways, right? They can produce seeds that float on the air, and they can also send out roots that will then send up shoots that come up from the ground and sprout a new trunk. But the weird thing about this is that that new trunk is connected Uh, to the same roots as the original tree, and it's genetically identical to the original. And we see this in in lots of different kinds of plants in nature. Mm -hmm. So while you could think of these new, you know, trunks as clones, um, it it really is for all intents and purposes, like part of the same large organism. Mm -hmm. And I like to use the example when I've talked to kids about this, that like I have lots of hairs on my head, but each one is not a separate animal. They're all just parts of me. Right. And that's how that's how Pando works, right? So it would be one massive root system and lots of trunks. It would be really freaky if each hair on your head was a separate animal. Well, I would have also so make many questions. Way more gruesome. <laughs> yeah. I think. Um, not yeah, that's oof. Wow. Oh, what you're thinking of, well, Kirk, so, that's Medusa. Yeah. That's yes. Medusa. Right, exactly. <laughs> ooh. Uh, so while, while researchers were, were working in Utah, uh, they tested trees in the Fish Lake National Forest, and they found identical genetic, genetic markers in a huge stand of aspen, indicating that it's all one organism. So people started to call it Pando. I'm, I'm not really sure why. Uh, but it covers 100, 108 acres of land. So it's pretty big. It weighs, they think, 16 million kilograms, mm-hmm. uh, which is sizely. Uh, and Just they estimate a little bit. that it has been... Yeah, that it has been regenerating because it's not just like those tree trunks have been there. They keep on regenerating and sending up new ones for thousands of years. And some scientists actually claim that there has not actually really been dispersal of genetically diverse aspen seeds in the Western U.S. since the Ice Age or perhaps from before the Ice Age, which could mean that some of these colonies of aspen in the Western U.S. could literally be a million years old. Which blows is your mind. mind blowing. What? Right now, they don't think Pando is that old. They think it's uh, about sixteen thousand years old because the area where it was it is was under a glacier, so it cannot have been growing that long. I did mm-hmm. find um, that that number depends on who you talk to. I think Rachel, you cited the number eighty thousand years old when you talked about it, and yeah. I did see that number out there. There just isn't. There's just no agreement on how long 
Uh, and it's been hard to be able to test that rings. too, because yeah, like you say, yeah, you can't count the rings and it's hard to test. Like you can't necessarily find the oldest section of root and test exactly. that either. Exactly. Yeah. And that's so, you know, I, I, that's why I like the 16,000 or so year one, because it's based on when the glaciers were there. And you can probably say, look, if it was covered with glaciers, it was, uh, it was not going to be growing. Right. Mm hmm. So, like I said, though, this is all just a recap of the info that Rachel already talked about in episode 16. You can go listen to that. Uh, but I wouldn't be bringing it up unless there was more to the story. Ooh, tell us As more. it turns out, Pando isn't the largest living organism on Earth. Oh. Intriguing. I have two, what? Two, other can- two other candidates for you. Okay. Both of which are capable of knocking Pando off the uh, pedestal. So is this like a, a um, what is the word I'm looking for? My brain's not working. Is it uh, uncertain which one is the largest? Or are we going to, I guess you're going to tell us. I will go into that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but it is hmm. a little uncertain uh, or, or maybe not. So number one is one that has been, out, been known about for a little while. It's called the humongous fungus, <laughs> which That's is the just... Name. An utterly awesome name. Uh, it's That's actually a really type of good. honey fungus that is found in the Blue Mountains of Eastern Oregon. And keep in mind, Pando covers 108 acres, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. The humongous fungus covers 2,200 acres. What? Holy moly. That's so big. So, 2,000 acres? Yeah. That's as big no, no, as no. both. 2,200. 2,200. <laughs> That's more than both of the places that we work at, Kirk. Like, the entire yeah, it's, park. It's, it's huge. It is huge. So, it turns out, though, um, it's, it is impossible to actually weigh the fungus. You wonder how much it weighs. That's one of the way we kind of look at how big something is, is how much it weighs or how much mass it has. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just all the individual mushrooms. But if you don't understand how mushrooms work, there are acres and acres of mycelium, which you can think of as sort of like the roots of the fungus that is just growing everywhere in this area. And I saw one estimate that figured that they maybe, it maybe weighs 650 tons uh, and yet another estimate that was 7,500 tons. So, (laughs) you know, I have no idea how, how, how would you even be like, how would you even really figure that out? Right. Cause there's all these little teeny tiny little rootlet like mycelium it's pretty hard to estimate. Yeah, a lot of assumptions. Really wide estimates. A lot of assumptions mm-hmm. going yeah. into those estimates. So there are either way, you know, either one of those sizes, there are some people who are prepared to call it the most massive organism on Earth. Here's the problem, though. We mm. don't really have any way of knowing if all of that mycelium underground, um, you know, essentially the like the 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 fungus roots, mm-hmm. we don't know if they're actually connected. If you think about how fungus spread like they'll kind of spread to a new area and then new like mushrooms will come up but sometimes the old stuff dies off and -hmm. it seems like this particular honey fungus which is you know by the way genetically all identical in this whole area it definitely has been spreading all over and keeps on growing and lots of them probably are connected but we don't know if all 2200 acres are all connected as one organism or just okay, a whole right. bunch of organisms growing in one spot that happen to all be clones of each other but aren't connected, right? And okay, yeah. I don't know yeah. of any way to really test that out and find out. And I assume we're probably never going to know. So that's kind of a bummer. Huh. But still, yeah. very cool. 
And definitely the second candidate for largest living organism is a plant uh, that was just written about in June of 2022. And Rachel, I'm going to make you guess here since we have a choice between your two favorite topic areas. Do you think the new candidate for the largest organism in the world was found in Australia or in the ocean? <laughs> Ooh. I know. It's like your two favorites. How do you choose, right? Yeah, it is. Um, they just both keep giving. I know. Um, I'm going to... I'm going to go the ocean. There's more space. Well, um, I mean, you're right because the answer is yes. The plant was found uh-huh. in the coastal ocean waters of Australia. <laughs> so oh my you would have been right either way. <laughs> <laughs> so I was both right and wrong. <laughs> I mean, no, I'll say you were, you were, you were right. You're right. Um, so what, what researchers <laughs> found was a colony of... Uh, Poseidonia australis, also known as fiberball weed or ribbon weed. And this is an aquatic plant that forms colonies uh, that can be genetically Mm -hmm. identical, much like the ocean version of aspen trees on land. Um, So they've been known to grow and uh, have large colonies that persist in areas for thousands of years. Uh, There's other um, species of this same genus that are found like in the Mediterranean, for example. And mm-hmm. one of the really amazing things here is that researchers report that they took samples of this ribbon weed that were 110 miles apart and they were wow. genetically identical, meaning oh. all the plants in between were connected clones of each other. So wow, and they were all connected. Uh, well, that's that's the assumption, yeah, because it's just one big like nonstop ribbon weed thick colony. That's nuts. Uh, that's crazy. The colony covers two hundred square kilometers, and that is what that is. I know you were impressed when it was. <laughs> you were impressed when it was two thousand two hundred acres, right? Well, let's do the math here. Uh-huh. Two hundred square kilometers <laughs> is. 49,000 acres. <laughs> so, That's a lot of acres. It's, wow. It's ridiculous. To remind listeners, like a, a, an acre is the size of a football field without the end zones. Uh, so that's 49,000 football fields, which I don't know about you, but I like. I cannot physically picture no, that. No, it's meaningless. I cannot even picture. No, you can't. How big that is. No. It's just, it's amazing. Now, again, assuming that these are all connected, which I think there's probably a pretty reasonable chance that they are connected. And I'll I'll just give the humongous fungus the benefit of the doubt and say that it is connected as well. Um, This newly discovered, like, essential, I'm going to call it an organism, this this ribbon weed colony, is so colossal that Pando and the humongous fungus, they they don't even stand a chance. Even combined, they they would not be anywhere near this large. No, not a, not even a little. Yeah, I mean, Pando is only like 100 acres. And uh, and then you have it, 2,000 for the humongous <laughs> fungus. 49,000 just absolutely destroys that. Um, the researchers in the paper... Hey, hey, Kirk. What's that? You could you could say that it blows them out of the water. That is true. Yeah, that is really, really terrible. Yeah. 
Wow. Thank you. I mean, you could say that, but let's not. Um, so <laughs> I, I will add one little extra thing is that the researchers um, know how fast ribbon weed grows and how fast it spreads through the rhizomes, which is how they spread when they're doing this. And so they can look at the size of it and estimate how old it is. They estimate it that it is 4,500 years old, which is simply <laughs> wow. fascinating. Simply fascinating. So my source yeah. for, sources for this week was the, the journal article. Uh, which was extensive polyploid col colonality was a successful strategy for seagrass to expand into a newly submerged environment. That was from the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences, uh, and then naturally some background information also from Wikipedia. So that's what I have for you guys this week. Pretty exciting. Nice. We're Thanks, That Kurt. was major. Yeah, we're going to take a break, wow. and when we come back, uh, it'll be Rachel. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strangebynature. See you soon. All right. So to end my theme this week. Oh, your, your, oh, your Pride Month all, rainbow stuff. Back. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. My Pride Month rainbow thing. It is the very, it's the last Wednesday of June. Congratulations. We all made it. We made it. Yep. Um, uh, with so many colorful rainbow choices, I had to go with a topic that was not only strange, but also rainbow. Naturally. Um, so, naturally. But I also, like, kind of struggled because I didn't want to do, like, a rainbow. Um, right. We could we could have gone back to the bobbit worm. They're, they're kind of rainbow colored. Exactly. My, my summer that campers, did come up in the search. My summer campers were discussing the bobbit worm today. Some of them were really into it. <laughs> and they kept using the uh -huh. name bobbit worm instead of sand striker worm with no realization mm -hmm. what that name bobbit worm like yeah. references. And that was that was, amu yeah. that was amusing. I mean, yeah, that, that's pretty good. Yeah, they that is completely out of that context now. Yep. That's um, for the best. So I ancient cultural <laughs> reference. That's <laughs> Um, so I decided, well, what's better than having something that has rainbow in the name? So I decided to go with a tree. Oh, oh I thought you were going to say a trout. Degulpta. Uh, tr trout was a close. It was good. It was up there. Um, also known as the rainbow eucalyptus. Yes. I love these. Um, yeah, they're really cool. Uh, so Degulpta. Uh, in Latin means husked, husked or peeled off. Yeah, that fits. Um, and this particular tree is unique in several ways. Uh, the least of which is that it's one of the only species of eucalyptus that is naturally found in the northern hemisphere mm -hmm. uh, oh, okay. and outside of... Um, and it's outside of... One of four species found outside of Australia. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, it's natively... Yeah, is natively found in the Philippines, Papua New Guinea, and Indonesia in the rainforests. So it requires a lot of moisture, 
but it's been introduced a lot of other places like the United States. Yep. Um, like the name implies, this tree is insanely colorful, having multicolored stripes of reds, greenish blues, yellows, oranges, even like purples in addition to oh, like yeah. the base color of brown. Wow. It is beautiful. Um, you'll absolutely, it'll be on our social media. You'll have to come check it out. Um, and the reason behind these colors actually requires a little bit of background into eucalyptus in general. Mm -hmm. So eucalyptus are generally pretty unique genus of trees um, and are pretty fast growing and other fast growing trees like birch do this as well. But a common characteristic is for the outer bark of these trees to shed off. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. Which or like a blew sycamore my mind. Does that too, Yeah, right? like a sycamore. Yeah, I think I'm so. I'm sorry, did you say sycamore? Um, sycamore. Yeah. Sycamore. I heard sycamore. I'm like, what? <laughs> sycamore. <laughs> yeah, okay. Woo. All right, moving on. Um, which personally blew my mind because I generally speak and teach on the fact that um, bark is like this layer of protection against the outside world right. for the tree, for like the growing cambium layer, for the growth layer of the tree and it helps protect it from like predation and bugs and infection. But in the eucalyptus, it, it's a little different. Every year, the bark of the eucalyptus dies, like a thin, thin layer of the bark dies. And depending on the species, it falls or flakes or just kind of shreds down in very, like depending on the species, um, allowing the tree to shed any lichen or fungi or parasitic pests that have been accumulated over the year. Oh, and I suppose in a, like a really now, fast growing wet environment, that could be very useful. Exactly. Huh. Um, especially since this is such a fast growing tree, uh, the rainbow eucalyptus in um, particular is able to double its size each year until its trunk reaches about six feet in diameter. Wow. Um, yeah. There were a few um, uh, references in um, the in the research that I was doing where it referenced uh, that it can grow up to or more eight to ten feet in height every year. Oh man, <laughs> wow. that's uh, that's fast. That's fast. Um, another one was about three feet a year, so it really depends on the source. Well, and probably um, on growing conditions too. I'm guessing yeah. that's what that where that comes. That from. as well too. Yeah, like if it's grown in the United States, the colors don't get as colorful and it doesn't grow as much either. Um, but generally speaking, this tree can get to about the height of 250 feet. So this is a big tree. Yeah, they're big. Yeah. Um, they're huge. Now, what's with the colors? Mm -hmm. Why does it have all of these colors? Um, as the tree sheds, thin, as the rainbow eucalyptus sheds thin layers of bark, it doesn't shed each layer uh, as each layer kind of dies. Um, it doesn't necessarily shed them all right away. So each layer is exposing different age um, sections of the tree. So mm -hmm. as uh, the tree sheds those thin layers of bark, they get exposed to air, um, which is pretty useful for the bark because uh, inside the layers, so there's kind of several cell layers thick and um, an inner layer of, like the innermost layer of the bark is packed full of chlorophyll, chlorophyll, mm -hmm. chlorophyll. 
chlorophyll. <laughs> <laughs> and then the outer layer at has like a slightly orange tinge to yeah. it um, due to some of the tannins. So this thin layer, as it sheds, the chlorophyll eventually dies and it loses that green complexion, but the tannins come in or like not come in, but there's more tannins to the outside part of the bark mm-hmm. for that thin, thin layer um, to the, and it exposes it to the air. And eventually like it just leads to buildup and the mixing of the colors of the tannins and the chlorophyll cause the different colors to be present. One of people haven't seen. Yeah, so it's like all the gradations in between the innermost layer, which has all the chlorophyll, which is green, and the outermost layer, which has the orangish. The natural, like orangish brown yeah. bark. Well, I yeah. don't think you mentioned too. For people who haven't seen it before, like it, it peels off vertically, so you get like stripes yeah. going down the it's tree and of, vertical stripes. Yeah, vertical stripes of like a riot of color, and every little strip is a different color it's it's so wild yeah it looks sort of like yeah. it was painted by an impressionist painter <laughs> right 100 percent, and it's all due to the different ages of those layers of bark because okay. not all of them shed all at once so they're um, not just one so one color like they, they, they change color over time is what you're saying yeah gotcha so some of those like yellows might eventually turn into a per- like a, a dark purple or a blue um, generally speaking, when the newest layer falls off, it's generally like a really bright green. Okay. So that is going to be like the newest shed okay. of color. Because it has the most chlorophyll. Gotcha. Exactly. Um, I did look into it. Uh, there's still research to be done on the different types of tannins and how exactly like that buildup and variation of color kind of works. But I have to say like, for this, for, to end all of this month of color, like it's one colorful tree. It's a really in good choice. In an unusual place. Yeah. Thank you. They're so strange. I, the place I've seen them is in Hawaii. They're bizarre. So if you ever. Yeah, they've been in Hawaii. Yeah, if you ever get a chance to go to uh, Maui is where I've seen them on the wet side of the island, on the road to the, the Hana Highway on the back side of the island there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're, there's tons of them. And they are, like you said, absolutely enormous uh and Mm -hmm. they are like just a riot of color i had no idea they grew so fast you see these huge trees and you go oh these must have been here for a really long time and of course they may have no but like they could also be sounds like they could be fairly recent too so that's really interesting Mm -hmm. yeah and a lot of those two uh like these trees were introduced to like hawaii and texas and california and i think florida as well Mm -hmm. um so it definitely wasn't natively there, but I mean, as long as it doesn't hurt. I know they're really, the flowers that they get um, for pollinate like are really good for pollinators and stuff. They're full, chock full of nectar. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, one cautionary thing about this tree, though, because of how it sheds its bark, and this is just eucalyptus in general, it does mean that it's a pretty good fire hazard as well. <laughs> I bet. I was just thinking that. So that's not great. For, you know, California. <laughs> and they're very resinous but, trees, aren't they, as well? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But they're really cool. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria. Great. Right. 
Well, I have talked before about how whenever I used to go to the beach as a child, I was way more interested in, you know, scouring the shore for shells and seaweed than I was in swimming in the ocean. Right. And yep. yeah, last time I mentioned this, if you remember, in the context of the my horseshoe horror crab, of horseshoe right? crabs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That was the episode Which, I believe was you know, called Bleeding Crabs for Science. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Horseshoe crabs look like nightmare alien face suckers, but in reality are completely harmless to humans, as you'll remember if you listen to that episode. Today, I want mm-hmm. to talk about the opposite, which is something that you might find on a beach that is incredibly beautiful and alluring, Ooh. but which might possibly kill you. Ooh. Oh, good. I was love the allure talking, of being killed by something on a beach. Talking today about cone snails. Oh. <gasps> I have to take it off my okay. list, Victoria. They're so <laughs> cool. They're so dangerous. Oh, yeah. I'm, so, I'm settling in. I'm ready. Snail of death. More or We're less, ready. actually. Yeah. I'm ready. Yeah. So cone snails uh, are snails, as the name indicates. Oh. They're marine snails, specifically. And as you might also guess from the name, their shells are cone-shaped. So if you have any kind of interest in seashells, you have probably seen one of these, even if you didn't know exactly what you were looking at. Okay. They have incredibly beautiful shells. They're shiny, and a lot of them have very colorful and intricate patterns. Uh, You can get a little bit of an idea from the names of some of the species. So there's the textile cone, the geography cone, the marbled cone. Magical cone, oh. princely cone, and so forth. Those sound great. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. Naturally, this makes people inclined to pick them up if they encounter them on the beach. <laughs> sure. Or, 100%, which you <laughs> should not. You should not. Yeah, or while diving. Also, this is a, yeah, so a potentially deadly mistake. Um, all cone snails are predatory and venomous, and many of the larger ones are quite deadly to humans. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, cone snails have a pretty amazing way of catching their prey. So they are slow moving. They don't have especially good eyesight, but they are incredibly sensitive. I guess you could, you could call it their sense of smell. It's, it's a really a, a chemoreceptor organ. It's called the osphradium, but mm. it's basically okay. sort of smelling. And their osphradium is more sensitive than for any other kind of gastropod. So I actually talked about a gastropod a few weeks ago, if you remember the chiton. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So That was was... hard to find a photo for, Victoria. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine. So that chiton, if you remember, has a radula that it uses to scrape algae off the rocks. Yep. So... Cone snails also have a sort of irradula, but it's modified so that basically one tooth, so to speak, at a time develops into a kind of a hollow barbed, uh, barbed dart. Hmm. And it's, it's called the toxoglossin radula. So essentially, once they sense that their prey is close enough, they stick a proboscis out of their mouth and then... From inside the proboscis, they fire the radula like a harpoon oh, gosh. into their prey. No. And it delivers the venom. And then they can oh, use my. that to pull it back into their mouth. <laughs> wow. This Horrifying. is, I, I, I have to admit, this is something I was not familiar with at all as someone who yeah. did not grow up in the ocean. 
we don't have it's, these. It's in, pretty in violent. Yeah, we don't have these in in the lakes where I spend my time. And a Luckily. good thing too. So that dart is actually disposable. That one's done, but there's always oh, wow. a new loaded dart waiting. Really? Wow. Yeah. That sounds like energetically expensive. It does. It does. But I guess high risk, high reward. Yeah. I, I suppose. Um, but also some species use their, their radula to release venom into the water. Don't like so that. So they can stun their prey before they harpoon it. Oh. Okay. Wow. And right. I want to talk a bit about cone snail venom because it is totally fascinating. It's, it's incredibly complex. These are peptide venoms, which means that it's a sh they're made of short chains of amino acids, like basically like a protein, but kind of smaller and less complex. Right. Mm -hmm. And each cone snail's venom contains hundreds of different peptides, each of which uh, can target a different function in the prey animal's body. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of them seem to be neurotoxins that act in various ways, and they can affect like very specific ion channels or receptors in different nerves. Sure. And the venom hmm. varies by species and also by individual which means that prey species have a really hard time developing any resistance because there's, it's it's different from each cone snail. Wow! So it mm -hmm. varies between individuals, not just between species. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And the That's the crazy. explanation I saw of that was that because it's not something that acts internally to their body, there's less a little less selective pressure okay. on the different types of venom or the different types of peptides. So there's there's more. Um, mutations and, and variation that goes on. Wow. Okay. Anyway, unsurprisingly, there is a lot of medical research looking into the properties of cone snail venom. Right. Yeah. And in fact, there is already a drug on the market that is um, based on a cone snail venom component. It was brought in like, I forgot to write it down. I think it was like 1994. Okay. I could be wrong about that. At any rate, um, it's a painkiller. It's called Zyconotide. It's marketed as Prealt, and it's an incredibly strong painkiller. It's 1,000 times the strength of morphine. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. Oh, that's not. Wow. Oh, wow. That's, that's a lot. That's dangerous. I assume, I'm assuming the dosage is much smaller then. Sure. It have to be. Also, it does not apparently result in tolerance or dependence the way that opioids do. Huh. Really? Yeah. Okay, less dangerous. Doesn't sound like much That's of a moneymaker awesome. well, to me. Well, there's a catch. Oh, there's a big well. A couple there's catches. A, yep. It's extremely uh, painful. Two big downsides. One, it has some pretty severe side effects dosage dependent, including hallucinations and psychotic thoughts. Mm -hmm. Not oh, great. good. Not and great. two, uh, it needs to be administered directly into the spinal fluid. <laughs> I mean, that's Ow. not great. Oh. Ow! Uh, no! Uh. <laughs> yeah, so that's just inviting one pain needs, for another. Needs, yeah. needs work. Needs a little work. This that's, one. A, that's a very invasive 
route of administering a drug for yep. those of you who are who don't know about that it's you know if you're tapping into the spinal fluid that's oh. a lot of risk of infection and stuff like that so um yeah uh, chemists are working to try to modify it to reduce the side effects and see if they can figure out a way so that it can be administered you know orally or through an iv or something but currently, it's really only used in cases of extremely severe chronic pain, usually in cancer or AIDS patients. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple other specific toxins I wanted to talk about. So there are two cone snail species that hunt fish called uh, the Conus geographicus and Conus tulipa, the ge- geography cone and the tulip cone. And they have a venom that actually contains a version of insulin. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That didn't. So it's wow. Nuts. It's similar to fish insulin and not to the snail's own insulin. And the, okay, the snail releases a combination of toxins, including this insulin. And you'll like this. Scientists call this this com- toxin combo the Nirvana Cabal. Ooh. Okay. I like that. <laughs> So it's, it's this insulin and then some neurotoxins, and there's a combined effect, but uh, the insulin can apparently be absorbed by the fish through the water and through their skin, and it causes their blood sugar to drop suddenly and puts them into hypoglycemic shock. Of course it does. Oh, my gosh. Why, why would it not? Of course. That is something. And then the snail can gobble them up. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is this is pretty Ooh. amazing. This is the first time it's been shown in nature uh, of a an animal using insulin as a weapon. Right. I mean, just I I wonder how often there's even using any kind of compound that that, that is from the animal that that it's attacking. You know what I mean? Like yeah. using your body's I don't think that's material against very you. common. Yeah. Usually, it's some sort of form, no, it's not form a, thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's not exactly mm-hmm. the same as the fish's own insulin, but, but it it's works. It works though. Similar, yeah. Yeah. It's similar enough that it tricks the fish's system into believing that it is that insulin and dropping the blood sugar. Cool. Yeah. That's that's certainly Nuts. strange. Uh, that's awesome. And one oh. final other toxin recently discovered that I wanted to talk about. It's also uh, done through the releasing into the water method, and this is by Conus imperialis. Um, apparently it mimics the sex pheromones of certain marine worms. So you don't say there are these bristle okay. worms that they spend most of their time burrowed into hiding spots, like in coral reefs. And they only come out to mate during a full moon release of pheromone signals <laughs> the worms to come out. Yep, but when the coat yep. snail releases its venom, worms come out, start wiggling, wiggling around doing their mate and hey. dance. And then they get eaten. Snack time. It's lunchtime, or I guess m- full moon. I don't. It's a midnight snack. I don't think of snails as being such like vicious predators. This is. Yeah. This is That's because when we see them, it's like they're. We see them like a lot of the times the little land snails right, or yeah, the ones yeah. that we find all mm-hmm. the time. They're slow and they're not. Like they're mostly. I think the ones around us mostly eat like algae and things right. like that. Not. Yeah. Actively hunting cone snails are crazy right that's so so cool thank you victoria 
Yeah. A couple yeah. of my Thanks, main Victoria. sources this week uh, were two of the studies I mentioned. One is by Helena Safavi Hamami and um, colleagues from our favorite journal, Inas. There it is. Once nice. again. Uh, <laughs> from 2015, specialized insulin is used for chemical warfare by fish hunting cone snails. And the other is uh, by Joshua T. P. Torres and his colleagues from 2021 in Science Advances, Small Molecule Mimicry Hunting Strategy in the Imperial Cone Snail. Awesome. So there you have it. Sweet. Thanks, Victoria. Absolutely. That is all I have for you guys this week. Thanks so, for listening, everyone. Yeah, thank you for listening. We're going to wrap it up and see you next yeah. week. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.